Hello and welcome to the Island Stories podcast. I'm your host, Harriet Hadfield. Three years ago, I came home to the island and started a new life, which really got me thinking. Each and every one of us living here has an island story. This season, we've spoken to some wonderful guests, each with an extraordinary story to tell. So let me introduce this week's guest, Jane Derbyshire, founder of Spotlight, a stage group and school based at Shanklin's iconic theatre. A former showgirl, this islander has danced on stages all around the world before coming home to change the lives of thousands of young people through theatre. Hey Jane, thanks so much for joining us. Hello, that makes me sound... <laughs> I've never heard about myself in that way before. I just got goose pimples reading it. First question we always ask, this is going to be a lively one, isn't it? We always ask on the podcast, very simply, why the island? Mm. I didn't have much choice. My parents brought me here when I was seven, along with my brother and sister that were six months, and I've been here ever since. And I'm still here because I suppose I'm addicted to it. Just the air, the beaches, the scenery. Yeah, it got hold of me and never let go. And you have left because you've had this incredible career, which we're going to talk about a bit later on. I did, Dancing all around the world. (laughs) Um, What is it about the island that makes you feel that this is home this is your place I just feel like from a young age I connected to it I just can't imagine not being five minutes from the sea this is where I want to bring my son up it feels like the air is different for all of its faults and it's slightly behindness I kind of just relish in that and I don't know my brother and sister didn't live here my mum doesn't live here anymore she hated it My dad doesn't like it, but there was just something, I think probably it was the theatre at that time in my life that I just couldn't be separated from. So you just mentioned your son. Who is your island family? Where do you live? Give us an idea. So um, I'm married to James Derbyshire and his parents ran a pub in Shanklin Old Village for 30 years. And we have a son who's five and a half called Freddie so we have a tiny family. I have a brother and sister. They live on the mainland. My dad lives here. My mum lives on in Havant. And yeah, that's it. We are a tiny family. No cousins or anything. Now, you and I met because we were both guest speakers at an event for the Townswomen Guild Federation. We were. And you went before me and I knew <laughs> nothing about you. And they'd explain, you know, she founded Spotlight and I thought, oh, this will be, this will be interesting. Interesting. <laughs> It was extraordinary. I remember getting up afterwards and saying, I'm not sure how I follow that. <laughs> well, as a, yes, that's funny because I was terrified because you turned up with a PowerPoint and I was there with my <laughs> notepad that had recipes on the back and shopping this. I thought, oh gosh, I should have prepared. I have to say the PowerPoint was just clips of me, you know, with very blonde hair on the news in the end. But um, yeah, you were absolutely incredible. And one of the things um, that really touched me that I learned about you was actually you had a really tricky childhood here on the island. Yeah, so I've been doing quite a lot of delving into this recently because I've become fascinated with people's behaviours and where they come from. So where's the root of everyone's issues, their quirks, their problems, rather than just like the flower or the stem? It's like there's always something deep-rooted. And I've been trying to work this out for myself. So I've recently come to the conclusion that I think before the age of seven, actually my childhood was... Good. Because I don't have any attachment issues. I'm quite confident in who I am. I don't crave attention. 
But I think post seven, what happened with my family is my mum and dad had twins. They relocated to the Isle of Wight. My mum felt very isolated. They didn't have much money. And I think life took hold of them, took over them. And in turn, perhaps we suffered as children because we witnessed the breakdown of a marriage that took sort of seven years to come to a head. And it wasn't particularly pleasant. And so I think that's what happened. I think the kind of bad things or how I perceive them happen between the age of seven and 15, which I think is quite a vulnerable time, isn't it, for a child sort of after 10 into their teenage years. So it was, yeah, it was hard, I think. And it's difficult because when I talk to my mum now, she says, oh, you always go on that you weren't loved, we didn't love you, and we did. But you can't help what you feel, right? But now when I'm doing lots of digging into this, before seven... I do think my childhood was happy. I think it just went slightly skew-whiff after that when a marriage just became too stressful. One of the things I think about you is that you're very resilient and that you're good at looking after yourself. Is that something you had to develop? And, and how much do you think that made you feel very rooted in the island? Because you kind of went and made it your own. Yeah, everyone always says I'm really strong-minded and defiant and brave and things and I just seem to remember that there wasn't a lot of choice it wasn't like I was left in a garbage bin it was my mum left the island overnight when I was 15 and I was devastated at the thought of leaving this island because I was coming to the theatre and that was my life I found a thing it wasn't school I couldn't bear being at school but just the thought of leaving the circle of friends that I'd made here and this world of entertainment and also inclusion I just felt like this is my place like I can't leave with my mum and my brother and sister so I have to stay and I did I stayed on my own from 15 so I think and also from a young age I understood that if I wanted something I had to go and get it I'm not from an affluent background my mum lives in a council house my dad lives in a mobile home and I just understood that through working and being brave I could get what I wanted if I wanted it hard enough. We're sitting here recording in Shanklin Theatre and it strikes me when you talk about being attached to the island this theatre is almost like an island for you this is home. Yeah this place is so weird because I didn't ever mean to find it It wasn't like when I was four, I went to dance lessons and I was a rising star and I did all of the festivals. It wasn't really like that. It was when I was 12, my best friend said, oh, I go to this place on a Sunday and it's really good fun. We do some singing and dancing. And at this point, I was heavily involved in the upbringing of my brother and sister. And I thought I could just really do with not doing that all the time. So I came here with my friend And it just evolved. I don't know what happened. I think I became good at dancing. That was my thing. I just felt warm here or like I had a purpose. Like I remember spending a lot of my childhood kind of having to stick up for myself at school. I wasn't academic. I'm still not academic now. By just being placed in a box and going, I'm better than this and you're consistently bringing me down. And I still to this day (laughs) would love to see all of my teachers and just have an honest chat and say, you did not help me one bit. And 
I am good enough. It just doesn't mean that you have to be academic. Well, talking about that success, I really want to ask you now about Spotlight. You know, that's the thing that you are best known for now. You've been running it um, since 2009. Yeah. And also you now run it with your with your husband, James. Yes. So it's a bit of a partnership. Um, just tell me how it was born. How did you come into it? So when I essentially tried to give up my dancing career in 2009, I came home and I became an estate agent because <laughs> I wanted what I thought was a normal job and a normal life. I'd imagine you'd be quite good at that because you're quite chatty. Yeah, and it's kind of, it's acting really, like yeah. come into this house that you're going to love. Are you quite actually, nosy as well? Yeah, I love. Oh, yeah. I Dream. had uh, two... <laughs> Two hopes for becoming an estate agent. One was that I'd get to nose around everybody's house. And the second, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, is that I always wanted to randomly have a romantic um, (laughs) meeting with somebody in somebody else's house. I never did the second, but I did have a route around people's houses. And then actually it wasn't as glamorous as I thought because I thought it was going to be like being on Selling Sunset. And it wasn't. I was just selling houses in the centre of Newport. So they're quite boring. Um, So during this uh, dull job, I started working back here at Shanklin Theatre, teaching for the stage schools, for all those people that I used to perform for. And they offered me a position to be their PA because they were useless. They are creatives. They are not business people. And the two are very different. So I started doing that and then fast forward six months, they offered to compete with my current salary, which was awful as a brand new estate agent. So it didn't take much. So I left. So I was working for them full time and then they took retirement and essentially what was then stage by stage ceased trading. And I just thought this place saved me when I was so young How can this just end? And the theatre was in turmoil from being given up by the council. So I said, I'm going to set something up called Spotlight. And it just has to be me because I want all of the responsibility, all of the gain, if there's any to be, and, you know, all of the bad things that come along with it. And so Spotlight was born literally overnight. And I didn't ever think I'd be sat here 14 years later. And you mentioned about the theatre there was a group of people, wasn't there, a very dedicated local group who did save it around the same time that you were setting up? Yes, it was like a collaboration. I remember when we did our first pantomime, which I've never put on a pantomime before, which comes with a huge financial implication that we were also running the box office. They didn't have an online booking system, so we were just answering calls around the clock, thinking, how can we make this work? So I feel that with the community that saved the theatre and us, it was a journey that we did together and one I will forever be thankful for. If you could explain or describe Spotlight and what it does, what its mission is, how would you describe it? I think what Spotlight does with our stage schools is just inclusive. We teach children aged four to 18 and anybody can come. It's not about making rising stars. If you want to take it really seriously, we would recommend you go somewhere else um, once we've kind of done our magic with you. But the best thing about our stage schools is that we welcome everybody. Additional needs, you know, that have particular requirements 
they can all come and you will have a nice time. We will welcome you into our family. And we kind of stand by. We just had a girl called Benita who's just left us to go to professional college. She's been with us since she was four and she's never, ever missed a term. And now she's 17. And I just think that's amazing. Like that's down to our team that you would choose to spend your entire childhood with us. That's just wonderful. And then with our shows, I think we provide something that is real. So I think when you come and see a spotlight show, it's a bond that you can't buy. So you could buy the best performers in the world, the best set, all the money if we had it, which we don't. Um, But what you're getting is a real authentic feeling. And I think that's what Spotlight has over lots of other companies. You talk about the magic of Spotlight. What difference does it make to children's lives, do you think? I think they can aspire to be who we are because we're real people. We've all come from such different backgrounds, some troubled, some very fortunate. And you can do what you want to do. We're kind of such a like higgledy-piggledy mix of people that you wouldn't find us on a West End stage. But it just works. And we're kind of there for each other. It's, I don't know, it's just a remarkable bond. What kind of shows do you put on? If someone comes to see a spotlight show, what can they expect? So I think we're most famous for our yearly pantomime, which runs throughout December, and that's very populated by locals. And then in the summer, every Thursday evening, we do a show called Beyond the West End, and it's a musical theatre review show. So it's evolved over the years. It used to be traditionally musical theatre, and now it's kind of iconic tributes, or we take you on a journey through life using the most famous musicals artists over the last 60 years. And then on a Wednesday night, we entertain thousands of visiting school children, particularly aimed at year five and six. And it's a loose educational theme, but it's essentially a summer pop pantomime. And we have been told for the last 14 years it is their best night of their life, which is amazing. It's a lot of output as well. You're doing a lot of shows. There's a huge amount of organisation. I know it started with just you, but you've built quite a formidable team now to to almost run it for you yes completely and I'm always slightly concerned when people say oh you run spotlight I am at the top of the piece of paper but my team run spotlight there is no spotlight without the team and it's so important to give them the recognition that they deserve because I can't do it without my writer and director my husband definitely not And also the team of people that are so loyal to us. And in 14 years, I have never, ever had a member of staff leave Spotlight. Wow. Okay, that's quite a testament, isn't it? Um, COVID was really difficult, the pandemic and the lockdowns. Were you worried at any point that you wouldn't come through it as an organisation? COVID's a tricky one because COVID is only just apparent to me now post-COVID because as I mentioned when we last met um, we went into lockdown in May and March and then in June my sister-in-law and one of our performers died in a car crash so that was my version of COVID and it happened at exactly the same time as COVID so the world went into shutdown but inside my house we went into shutdown for completely different reasons And I feel that we've only just come out of that shutdown to now notice that, oh my gosh, 
a worldwide pandemic happened and that is having a huge knock-on effect to to spotlight because now is not the time to be running a theatrical company which is fueled by tourism on the island but I didn't notice it at the time but what I did is I dropped the ball the business ball and my husband in my absence picked it up and kept the cogs turning for me because I hand on heart know if he wouldn't have done that we would have stopped trading and I would never have continued. I can really relate to that because uh, my divorce happened to me end of May, so just before that accident, that horrible, horrible accident. Um, and that then took over for me for, for two years. So in a similar way, I look back and I go, oh, yeah, there was a, there was a pandemic. Yeah, because, there was a thing. Yeah, but for so, you know, we forget that for some people, other life events were happening that were horrendous and actually often compounded by the pandemic. So a really, really tough time. Just looking at that, the accident and, you know, it was a big story at the time on the island. It was a huge, huge thing for you all to go through. How much do you think your island community or theatre community actually has pulled you through it? Oh, I mean, I feel, well, so much because I'm still here. But at the time, I really didn't want to come back here. And part of me still doesn't, if I'm honest. I think Spotlight is running because my husband James is keeping it going and for the beautiful people that we employ. But for me, part of that is definitely gone. But at the time, I knew we had to do something because if we didn't, we would do nothing. So I think we just had to put, or I had to put on my big girl pants and after some therapy get myself back to work and get back on the stage because if anybody loved performing, it was Rachel. I mean, it's the best thing you can do, isn't it? When you're grieving like that is to, is to get back into what you love. Um, just finally, um, on Spotlight, what do you think the future is for Spotlight? Is it in good, is it in good hands? Oh, the million dollar question. Spotlight right now is, I feel, in the hands of everyone else and not us I don't feel like we are particularly in control of its future based on the fact that post-covid so many of the things that we heavy, heavily rely on such as schools visiting the Isle of Wight hotels being open for guests coach parties coming down to the Isle of Wight the ferry prices the increased cost generally I feel all of that has to be sorted before we thrive, essentially. I feel like our pantomimes and our stage scores are really secure and we're doing all we can to make sure that our product stays as people expect without essentially drowning. But I feel that the summer is going to be treading water until the local economy kind of sorts itself out. So I have gained 14 years more joy than I thought I ever would but as for the future we have decided we're just going to keep doing what we're doing to the best of our ability and whenever the time comes whether it be in a year 15 years we'll be grateful I really hope that you can keep it going let's go back then to life before living here is what I normally say, but of course, if you've been here since you were seven, it's more to ask about when you left. 
which I think was around 2001 when you went to the Stellarman College. Yeah, that's correct. So I applied to go to dance school prior to that, but I didn't get in. And I think now looking back, I just wasn't ready. I was quite defiant at school. And I think I just needed a year out on the Isle of Wight, working, performing here. And then I went to dance school in 2001 and did a three-year musical theatre diploma, which I also didn't enjoy. I've come to learn. (laughs) I think I'm a control freak, and I don't like particularly people telling me what to do. Yeah. So that was difficult, but also it then just opened up my pathway to travelling through my career, which was the best time of my life. So... You spent two years traveling the Med, the Caribbean, America. You were dancing for Costa Cruises on board the most enormous cruise ship, 4,000 people. I did, yeah. What was that like? (laughs) Well, it was amazing because I was so young and we did an inaugural cruise, which is really special. So it was a maiden voyage on a ship. Everything was brand new. The stage was still being built. Our costumes were made to fit our bodies. And amazingly, our costumes for that contract, worldwide contract, were made in Sandown on the Isle of Wight. No way. And the costume ladies on that ship were the same costume ladies here. And I was like, this is so crazy. (sighs) Like my childhood home of Shanklin Theatre is essentially still with me all around the world. So that was really sweet. And I love that connection to this day. And he has those costumes still from so many years ago in in their workshop. Yeah, and that just began my obsession of being abroad and traveling. And that is still with me today. The the need to travel is embedded in me. See, I'd find it, I think I'd find it too nomadic to be, I suppose you're taking your home with you because you're on the ship. But the people keep changing over, the audiences keep changing, the routines stay the same, or did you change it up? I just, for me, I think I'd find it really, really difficult, but you thrived on it. Yeah, and I do thrive on things like that. I think any new experience I'm always up for, and the people do change. I think cruising long term is not a particularly stable life. I think if you would like to make connections and foundations somewhere, cruising is not really the job for you. But as a young and at that time heartbroken 19-year-old, <laughs> it was perfect for me. It was liberating because it was a chance to earn good money. I wasn't attached to having to look after my brother and sister. I could just be me and I was in charge of my destiny, I suppose. So, yeah, I just relished in it and loved it. And just love the opportunity to kind of like fly like a bird. And you say you were heartbroken. You'd had a big relationship, hadn't you, that had that had broken up. That was slightly what you were running away from. I think so. I mean, looking back now, it wasn't so heartbreaking, you know, compared to life these days. But at the time, I felt well, you do at that age, though, don't you? Yeah, it's the <laughs> worst thing. so intense. It's the worst thing in the world. I mean, <laughs> I did remain with that person for 10 years of my career. But it was just, it's a wonderful way for me to kind of find who I was and just be, yeah, in charge of what I did every single day. You spent two years as a showgirl at the Benidorm Palace in Spain as I part did. of a cast 
50. <laughs> Explain what a showgirl is. Okay, so essentially the, the most defining thing of a showgirl is they, they dance with very little clothes on. So topless essentially is a showgirl, kind of in inverted commas. And the reason why I did that show is because my nan and granddad used to go to Benidorm all the time. And she was such a huge fan of this show that happened at a place called Benidorm Palace. And she used to come back from our holidays with these brochures that I'd see all these beautiful girls, really tall, really slim, covered in diamonds. And she'd say, oh, this, we went to see the show again. And then randomly, I got offered an audition to be a showgirl. And I was uh, successful with my audition. And then I found out it was to be a showgirl and there would be some topless dancing and I thought oh I don't I don't think this is for me I didn't know what that meant at the time I thought it would just be some CD production and then I remembered that my nan went to this show year after year and she'd passed away by this point and I thought if there is anything I can do in my life to make her proud it would be to accept a part in her favorite production because then I get to be one of those girls in that poster with the feathers and the diamonds. So I said yes. And then actually I became a showgirl for about four years. It all looks very glamorous, very beautiful, um, great fun, obviously, for the audience. But what's it like living the life of a showgirl? I'd say the life of the showgirl, if you are not of strong mind, is difficult. The world is really different now for performing, and I think for the better. You can be who you want to be. Your size is not judged. And when I was performing, your size was judged. We were weighed every Tuesday after our days off. And it's kind of a thing that you did just have to be slim. And on adverts back in the day, you had to be five foot eight plus and no more than a size eight. And they were allowed to say that on an advert which seems crazy now. I'm not excusing it, but that was the world at the time. So I think it's fueled, and I'm sure still is, by lots of eating disorders, lots of self-doubt, lots of body-conscious issues. I was just lucky enough that I never suffered with that. I think all performers have some kind of hang-up, but I never suffered deeply with any form of body-conscious issues or eating disorder which is strange because I was always the shortest and always the biggest maybe you were the one of, of toughest mind yeah I think my mum brought us up on that food is nourishment and we never had any fatty upbringings and I always look back at that time and go I learned that food is to nourish not to harm and it's not evil so and I still stand by that today that we need food to, to live a healthy lifestyle so I'm I'm grateful for that. But lots of people I know didn't have such a positive experience. The other thing that you did while you were on your odyssey around the world was appear in 10 Bollywood movies. I love this about you. You uh, filmed Bollywood mo movies in Thailand, India and Dubai. What was that like? Oh, well, that was mad. It really was mad because the last thing that I wanted to do before I essentially retired to return to the love of my life that didn't love me was to do some TV. I was obsessed at that time with things like MTV and Top of the Pops. But I didn't want to be in England. I've never really wanted to work in England. And so I applied to be on a Bollywood agency and got the job through, through a friend that was doing it. So they flew us out to Mumbai 
and it was a life-changing experience. It wasn't hugely positive for me at that time because I felt quite vulnerable in a country as a white Westerner. And we were living very locally in, in, in India, a group of eight girls. And I just found that quite a stressful time. And the working conditions are crazy compared to out here. But I learned so much about myself and how privileged we are in this country to have what we have. But as an experience, it was amazing. Like Bollywood is crazy. You kind of think if you see a London premiere on the news, it looks great. Well, Bollywood is another level of fans. It was like millions of people shouting and screaming outside the gates and these superstars would turn up. It was it was wonderful and awful. <laughs> you talk about how you realise how privileged we are. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is the work that you've done um, working with people with sort of learning disabilities, difficulties. Um, it's called First Act, I think. Yeah, so First Act is a group that we work closely with and lots of our tutors here at Spotlight work for First Act full time. And I used to teach them on and off. And it is such a wonderful group that's been running for years now. And it welcomes people with a variety of disabilities and some, for example, with very serious Down syndrome, some people that are blind. And they provide an environment where they can perform real life shows. And they do that here at Shanklin Theatre. And it is so humbling to watch them perform. And they are just wonderful. And the people that run it, it's such a special place inside a first act so I've always been really proud to be associated with them and the teachers that they have are just exceptional people their levels of patience and the insight that they're able to transfer to people that sometimes can't hear can't see and just giving them the joy of real life performance so I had a chat with James your husband about you I always do this with guests on the podcast as you probably know um, to find out what it is that makes them such an extraordinary islander and why the island's so lucky to have you and this is what he said her ability to build confidence and inspire young people is not just through performing to be their own person live their life and be who they want to be she wouldn't want to live anywhere in the world now apart from the Isle of Wight she has such a strong connection to being close to the sea. She's so driven, ambitious, and has the ability to be, see the most beautiful side of everyone, still while staying true to herself and keeping her integrity through everything that she does. Oh, he's so cute. It must be incredible to have a partner by your side, raising your family and helping you with Spotlight and have that support. Yeah, I feel like James came out of nowhere I feel he was sent from somewhere completely unique that totally blindsided me because I'd spent a long time with somebody prior and James turned up who's younger than me, isn't really my type on paper, is this cockney confident lad, you know, with a hat on backwards and a leather jacket and completely swept me off my feet but for all the right reasons and I just feel that I just don't know how two people can walk the same planet for a long time. You know, our past had crossed when we were young here at the theatre. There's a photo of us of him being eight and me being 14. And I didn't even know he existed at that point. And he came along at just the most perfect time. And I've kind of never 
known love like it he is my biggest fan and it's crazy because it sounds so corny but he makes me feel like a queen every day and really empowers me and whenever I come up with this crazy idea it's never just like yeah yeah because then you'll be happy it's I fully believe in you and I just think it's, it's amazing you guys have a new project I'm so excited about this. <laughs> so just as a, as a side hustle, just as you do, Jane, you've been running the coffee bubble I since did. lockdown, which mm-hmm. you had your trailer going making coffee, but you're now going to turn it into a, a static thing. A structure. In the bay. Yeah, yeah the so coffee excited. bubble by the bay is coming soon. So kind of rewinding before my career in Spotlight, and all of the things, I always had a childhood dream of running a cafe by the sea. And I think it sounds so crazy to compare that with Spotlight, because Spotlight, you know, to perhaps yourself seems so glamorous and we get to put on huge productions. It's all sparkly and wonderful. But deep down, I've always wanted to just run a place by the sea. But my career kind of took over And then in lockdown, we had this opportunity where Spotlight was closed and mental health wise, I don't think I was in a great space because we'd just lost Rachel and I had no focus and I'm not great without any focus. So I literally just enrolled to coffee school in Winchester for a day out because I thought this will get me off the island. I don't have to mum for a day. Let's go and do this. So I did. And it was an accredited barista course. And I thought that was quite good. I enjoyed that. So I went back to do a latte art class. I thought I also enjoyed that. And then I started baking cakes in my kitchen during lockdown. And then I hired a coffee machine. And all of a sudden during lockdown, on a Saturday, I'd sell coffee and cake from my front door to my neighbours. And I was like, this is great. But I loved it because I had focus. It was like, these are the cakes I'm going to make. I'm practicing coffee. It was some sort of distraction from the utter turmoil that we were feeling on the inside. But we had no option to go to work, so we had to do something. And then completely on a whim, I just pressed buy on eBay on this mobile catering pod. And I said to James, I'm buying this thing. And he said, okay. And at that point, I do think he said, okay, because I was so sad. And he thought, I don't know how to help my wife right now. And then this trailer arrived. We called it the Coffee Bubble. We traded everywhere um, for two years, which has been wonderful. But on Sandown Seafront, I've always walked past this place. And I said, if that place ever came up, that would be perfect. It's not too big, but I could still sell nice things from it. But if it ever came up, that would be the dream. And I said that for about 20 years. And then in October last year, my best friend's mum sent me a county press advert that had this place up for sale for an astronomical price. And I just looked at the advert and thought, not now. Like, this is not the time. It, I feel like it was five years too soon. So I was pondering on it, but I think in my head, I knew I'm going to buy that place. I don't know how I'm going to buy it, but I'm going to do it. And yesterday I picked up the keys. Can't believe it. <laughs> I can't believe the timing. So I saw it on Instagram yesterday and I was like, yes, she's got it. We're going to talk about this tomorrow. Yeah, it's terrifying. How, how's, yeah, how's that feel? I feel like I've romanticised with the idea of this for so long that half of me is so excited 
and half of me is terrified that the dream that I've created in my head might not be the reality. But I am always the first person to say to someone, if you have a dream, you have to follow it. Because especially since losing Rachel, tomorrow is not guaranteed. Now, I think that is a blessing and a curse for me because I want everything today. Like, what if we can't do it next week? What if we're not here? So that's not always a good thing. But genuinely, I always think if I was lying on my deathbed, but I could see myself, I don't ever want to go. I should have done that. Or what if? I'd prefer to know the answer and be disappointed than to not know the answer and live regretfully. That's how I try to base every day of my life. (laughs) But I do feel this is the biggest risk and the most selfish choice I've ever made. This is 100% for Jane. And I feel that you can't pour from an empty cup, right? And I'm not saying my cup's empty, but I'm saying I think for Jane, I need to do this. That's such an empowering moment, though, I think, as a woman, where you say, actually, for the, for, the, for the good of everyone around me and the ecosystem that I'm a part of, this is what I need to do. Completely. And I think, you know, Spotlight gave me a gift. Lots of people benefit from Spotlight. The local economy, Shanklin Theatre, all of our staff. And I feel that there's a part of me that is to be fulfilled. And I'm hoping that that part is quite simply going to be satisfied from serving coffee, cake and ice cream by the beach. And actually, you know, Jane, it's not that selfish. I'm so excited about it. And partly because I really believe in the Bay. I believe in it as an area. I think it's obviously got its problems at the moment, but it really should be the most thriving modern day resort. I'm a big fan of Finns, which will be just down down Absolutely. the corner, just I mean, down just down the river from you. Yeah, and and we go there. We take the kids, and I mean, goodness, we will be you know the first in when you open. What's the plan for opening? Uh, when can we come and... Are you good at making coffee? My favourite is Sheer Pink in Newport, so you've got to be that good. <laughs> Gosh, wow. <laughs> Talk about um, pressure. So can I rival Emma Wilkinson at Sheer Pink? Absolutely not. Because her coffee and her knowledge and her passion... She's best on the island. ...is undoubtedly unbeatable. Best on the south coast, I think, probably. I'd say that she provides some of the best coffee I've ever had. And I spend a lot of time drinking coffee. (laughs) And I think that comes down to her passion for coffee. So I have a passion for coffee, but I think I have a broader passion for service, kind of serving the public. So I will make coffee to the best of my ability, but also with a welcoming smile, a nice chat, You can come and sit here if you've had a bad day. Tell me all about it. Look at the sea and have a Mr. Whippy as well. And when are you going to be open? I'm hoping to be open in about three weeks. The cafe needs quite a considerable glow up. So relying on tradies, which is not always fun. But if everybody pulls the strings in the right way by the end of June, I hope. Well, I think all of us can't wait for that. Finally, on the episode, we always ask guests a quick fire round of five things about the island. So, okay. Jane Dubshire, are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> Number one, your favourite place to grab a bite to eat? Smoking Lobster Venter. Good answer. 
on the beach so it doesn't really surprise me mm-hmm. how much is that kind of a version of the dream that you always had but doing doing food obviously always I don't know what it is about the sea I think it's just my place that I can't imagine not being there so anywhere by the sea I feel calm I feel like reconnected yeah it has to be by the sea and fish by the sea provided by those guys Yes, please. Well, then number two, your favourite beach. I want to hear the answer. Sandown Beach, obviously. Of course. Okay, fantastic answer. Uh, Your number one island activity. Drinking coffee by the sea. (laughs) Genuinely. It's what I read something that what you spend your time doing is what you value in your life. And I do that every single day. It's part of my religion that for 10 minutes, I will be by the sea and drinking coffee. That's it. Which island charity is closest to your heart? The Hampshire and Isle of Wight Air Ambulance, without a doubt. Which I am always astounded is a charity. You know, you sort of assume that things like the Air Ambulance will be funded, but actually they, they, they are a charity. They have to go out fundraising themselves. And it blows my mind, and it blows my mind that you can be in a traumatic situation as we found ourselves in, and you call three numbers, and somebody will literally fly you a trauma doctor for free. I can't get my head around that. And here we are, lots of people earning more money for sitting at a computer moving pixels around. I can't cope with that. Number five, your island hidden gem. Oh, there's a bench at the very top of Culver Down that is just magical. Like the bird song and the peacefulness. And I think you have to know where the bench is. So there at dusk. Are you going to tell us where the bench is? No. (laughs) Okay, so we've got to go and find it for ourselves. Jane, thank you. It's been amazing to get to know you even better and hear your island story. If you want more island news, sign up for my weekly email newsletter, 5-stories.co.uk. I'm Harriet Hadfield. My producer is Alex Warren. You'll find us on Instagram, Island Stories Podcast. This season, we are fortnightly and we'll have the final episode of the series in two weeks' time. Goodbye. Thank you. <laughs>